welcome to the aggressive life. It's hard to believe. Dirt. 2023, it's it's toast. It's it's it it's almost over, or based on when someone's listening, it is it is already over. It's gone. It's done. Gone, yeah. gone. Bye-bye. She gone. <laughs> <laughs> it was a big year for the podcast. Some of our most popular episodes and guests to date. Uh, this past year, I talked with NFL superstars, comedy legends, YouTubers, New York Times, best-selling authors, and a legit exorcist twice. Dag. So to close out this year, we're going to look back at the ground we've covered and relive some of my favorite moments from 2023. Consider this your Spotify wrapped, the aggressive life edition. If you missed any of these episodes, now's a great time to catch up. You'll find links to the full-length episodes in the show notes. It's not just these itty-bitty clips I liked. It was the whole thing. So if you like it, go check out the whole thing. Let's start with one of the most surprising ones of the year, Father Lampert. Yeah, I'm kind of a megachurch pastor guy. I am, not kind of, I am. I just own it. Why not? Some people try to hide from, yeah, yeah, I'll just own it. I'm one of those evil megachurch pastors that people think isn't real and and uh, is just a showman. Uh, they think that, but if you know me, which you do, you know that's just bullshit, not true. But I will admit to this. I have a level of spiritual snobbery, and I think, well, Catholic priest, what the, what, 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 what's he gonna, what's he gonna teach me? A lot, it turns out, a lot. Oh my gosh, I made a new friend in Father Lampert, amazing guy. Had two times with him on the podcast. I first welcomed him in April, and since that time, his original episode has jumped to the number two most listened podcast we've ever done in less than a year. Dusted Matthew McConaughey and others. Uh, Father Lampert is a trained in Rome exorcist. It's like on his business card, exorcist. And he's now working for the Diocese of Indianapolis. This man goes toe-to-toe with the devil, and he comes out on the other side unscathed again and again. I find his faith and his insights inspiring, but even more so, it's his humor and lightness. I'll tell you what, I need to be around more people who have a light demeanor. If a guy who deals with demons can smile, how about trying it every once in a while? My gosh, we have, we have too few smiles in our culture. He's nothing like what you'd expect an exorcist to be. At least he wasn't what I expect him to be. He's a deep well, a friend, and lots of stories like this. What was your first absolute no question I'm dealing with a demon situation. The church says the best way to learn the ministry is through the apprenticeship model. So when I became one of only 12, there really wasn't anyone to train under here in the United States. So my bishop sent me to Rome in the early part of 2006, and a priest in in Rome allowed me to sit in on 40 exorcisms that he performed during the three months that I was there. And then that allowed me to learn firsthand the ministry of the church to those who are up against the forces of evil and who are seeking help. So the very first exorcism that priest allowed me to sit on was a elderly Italian lady. She was there with her husband. So I was speaking with her. She told me she believed that she became possessed through a curse. Now I tell people that curses are only effective if we're weak in our faith. You know, we can't control what somebody else does. But as St. Paul tells us, if we're putting on the full armor of Christ, we need not fear the evil one. 
Psalm 91, I need not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day. So if we're living strong in our faith, curses have no impact on us whatsoever. But if we're weak in our faith, they can find that chink in our armor and then try to enter in. So I'm talking to this lady. She's telling me why she's possessed. And it is important to note that just because somebody is possessed doesn't mean they're manifesting all the time. It means that they've made a connection with a demon and something will trigger that demon to show itself. So I'm, I'm talking to her. The priest who was training me, he walks into the room and he puts a roll of paper towels on the table. He walks back out again. He comes in again and ties a plastic grocery bag onto the wall radiator in the room where the exorcism is going to take place. And I'm watching him out of one corner of my eye and I'm talking to this lady. And then the priest walks back in again and he has the ritual of exorcism in his hand. He begins to pray. He takes holy water and blesses the person. And why holy water? It's not that holy water is magic, but what it represents. It represents our new life into Christ. You know, where Jesus says in the letter to the Romans, are you unaware that we who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his life? So again, it's reminding us of our new life in Christ. As soon as the drops of water hit her head, her eyes rolled back in her head. She began to growl and snarl and foam at the mouth. And then the eyes came back down with this horrid, angry look staring at me. And I'm thinking, what in the world is going on? <laughs> and the priest grabs a paper towel, wipes her mouth off, throws it in the grocery bag, and then continues to pray. So he's not even impressed by these manifestations. Other manifestations can be that I've seen over the years. There can be levitation, where the body actually starts to rise out of the chair. I've seen when demons manifest, the body drops to the ground and begins to slither like a snake across the floor. Horrible smells, a drop in the temperature of the room. The voice becomes deeper, more authoritative. All of these things are like a child throwing a temper tantrum who wants the attention given, it, given to it. Whereas in an exorcism, the focus is always on God. Now, I, I tell people that in an exorcism, Jesus is not a bystander. He's the main actor. If we're relying on me as an individual, we're all in trouble. But if we're relying on the power and the authority in the name of Jesus Christ that he's given to his church and to the church's ministers, that's the right mindset to have. But all of these manifestations are really meant to instill fear where the devil says, look at me, look at me and what I can do. Whereas in an exorcism, the church is saying, don't look at the devil, look at God and look at what God can do in your life. We likely all remember where we were back in January when Buffalo Bills superstar DeMar Hamlin collapsed on the field during Monday night football. I was just thinking about this recently because we had an unexpected call out by DeMar Hamlin. It was in GQ and someone asked him the 10 things he couldn't live without and he opened up my, held up my book, Move. I was like, sheesh. He said, this has been a key to my life. Like, wow. By the way, DeMar, I've been trying to get you on Instagram. You're not responding to me. If I wrote a book that was important to you, how about answering my DMs and getting on my freaking podcast? Please. Anyway, yeah, please. All right, but uh, but I digress. It reminded me of uh, the one podcast that we had that touched on this situation. Uh, the whole thing when he collapsed 
on Monday Night Football happened just a couple miles, a few miles from where I'm sitting right now in Cincinnati, Ohio. People the world over prayed, and thankfully, DeMar made a miraculous recovery. And during that pivotal time, ESPN analyst Dan Orlovsky made the gutsy and aggressive call, not just a call for thoughts and prayers, but to actually do it live on the air. A few months later, I got to ask Dan about that moment. The next day, when it starts going viral, Dan Orlovsky actually prayed. And I saw your prayers like, man, come on, man. Come on, man. Like, wow. Put your your freaking faith on the line. Living your faith for people to see. Having a coherent prayer that was sensitive. Dude, way to be aggressive. It was fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. No, thank you for that. You know, like, I think in the moment um, when the game is happening, you, you've you never witnessed anything like that in your daily profession, for sure. You know, I, I kept hearing thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers, and those are awesome. They're awesome. They matter. They do. Um, but I had just thought to myself, like, I wonder what would happen if anyone just prayed, actually prayed for DeMar. Because I think we live in a world where, you know, this is not anyone's individualized fault, but like we are very onto the next, onto the next, onto the next people because everything is so rapid in our world today. And it's really easy. I'm guilty of it to say thoughts and prayers. And I just, you know, thought to myself, I wonder what would happen if someone just stopped down and actually action rather than words um, and just prayed for DeMar. And it was one of those like feeling God tug at you type of things and feeling God kind of pull at your heart. And, you know, I called the producer that was producing NFL Live that day and I told him like, hey, this is just something I might do. I don't know if I'm going to or not. I don't want to blindside you if I do. I just want to let you know. And he was like, you be you. I'm never going to not tell you to be yourself. He said, I have one request. If you are going to do it, let Laura and Marcus know because they're on with me. Hmm. And so before the show, I told Laura and Marcus, Laura Rutledge and Marcus Spears, like, hey, guys, this is just on my heart. I don't know if I'm going to do it. I probably won't, but it's just on my heart to do it. So if it happens and they both were like, you know, like you be you type of thing and kind of in the in the day or in the, the shows happening. And it just kept being on my heart in the moment I got scared to do it because of what the ramifications could be. Uh, was the moment I just kind of like settled and said, you just got to trust God right now, dude. And um, this is way bigger than you or what the ramifications could be. And that's kind of what led to what happened on TV. From Sports to Spies, this summer I got to chat with Michelle Rigby Assad, a former CIA operative who spent 10 years undercover. She lived in six Middle Eastern countries, including in the Green Zone and Baghdad. Her life was in danger regularly. Talk about badassery. Even how some of her former missions are still so classified, she couldn't share much about them. Even though I tried, what she could share was pretty wild. So you're a CIA operative, or you were a CIA operative, is that just, does anybody in the CIA get to have the title operative or what does that mean, CIA operative? So literally what that means, we actually call ourselves intelligence officers. 
Um, but those of us who were undercover and serving abroad, you could call an operative. It's kind of a fancy word for intel officer. But um, bottom line was my husband and I were the, uh, spent the majority of our career in the field. And so your job there is to recruit sources of information and handle them uh, securely and get their intelligence and send it back to D.C. So that's that's what we did for 10 years. Recruit sources of information. You're being like just a, an all points bulletin out to anybody who tell you something about a terrorist event happening or what do you mean by that? Yeah. So you have to figure out, okay, so I, how do I get to this terrorist? How do I figure out what who knows him who might report on him? Um, so developing those sources of information is not easy. It can be very challenging, obviously. But um, And then uh, once you try to get close to someone, then you've got to show them that you're not going to get them killed, that you've got the chops to handle them securely um, because the information they're giving you is so sensitive that if it's spilled, they could lose their lives. So getting them to work with the CIA, um, who really oftentimes they consider their, their biggest uh, enemy, is not a small thing. I mean, we lived in places that were crawling with Al-Qaeda, and that's a really hard way to live. Mm -hmm. uh, every time you leave the house, you're looking for hostile surveillance or an RPG or somebody standing with an AK-47. You know, you're, you're, you're driving a different route to work every day. You're leaving a different time every day, so you're not an easy target to potential terrorists. What's your, what was your hardest assignment or can you not tell me or else you'd have to kill me? <laughs> so the two places that are like neck and neck on this, and that's Iraq, a year in Iraq. But right before that, we were in a, a place that's, uh, I can't specify, but it was, we were two years in this place, which is, was one of the arms bazaars to the world, a uh, very uh, historic place, a lot of carjacking, a lot of kidnapping, and a lot of Al-Qaeda running around. Uh, so that was, uh, whew, boy, that was hard. Yeah, I bet. I do the podcast week in, week out because I want to help push your life forward, but also because I like what I like. There are perks for me. And this next guest was the opportunity to meet a hero of mine that a lot of people haven't heard of. Years ago, I stumbled upon the research of Dr. Stuart Brown. He's the founder of the National Institute of Play. Dr. Brown is a landmark leader in the importance of play, even for, or maybe especially for, adults. His insights convinced me it was crucial to reintroduce play into my life. I was heading towards burnout. I didn't have great imagination. I wasn't smiling and laughing that much. My relationships were suffering. And after years of trying to connect because he helped me recapture play that helped me recapture my life, I finally got the chance to speak with Dr. Stuart Brown this fall. Even at 90 years old, Dr. Brown is sharp, he's enjoying his life, and in this clip, he explains how he got interested in play. Okay, well, you know, I'm an old guy. We may go on for quite a while. But uh, back in 1966, I had had training in internal medicine, uh, was an assistant professor of psychiatry, when on August 1st, 1966, a 25-year-old ex-Eagle Scout, ex-Marine, climbed the University of Texas Tower in Austin with an armory after he had killed his wife and mother, 
wounded uh, 32, killed 14 more. And uh, since I was freshly minted as a professor, my boss and the governor of Texas organized a, a commission to try and understand why this young man who was killed in, in vigilante crossfire on the top of the tower as he finished this tragedy, trying to figure out why in the world a guy with no history of legal problems and with an architectural engineering major married to a, a town sweetheart, why would somebody do this? So for the next uh, number of months, uh, with a lot of funding, this was then the largest mass murder in the United States, so we went into tremendous depth, the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology studying his brain. Uh, we had a team that went back to Florida where he was from and even went to his father's orphanage where his father had been raised in order to find out uh, as much as we could. So this was an immense in-depth study of one human being, which uh, before or since I don't think we've done this level of uh, interviewing and depth. So at the end of this, at, at when we made our report to the governor of Texas and to the Commission on Mental Health and Mental Hygiene in the state of Texas, we had a consensus that the suppression of play itself, hmm. young man whose name was Charles Whitman, by his very disturbed, overbearing father, had meant that he did not gain the resiliency and the ability to deal with hidden violent impulses. He had been an observer, he, Charles Whitman, had been an observer of brutality and abuse in the family perpetrated by his father, but his external persona was uh, a golden boy. He was the youngest Eagle Scout in the history of the United States when he was less than 13 years old in Florida. So this opened my eyes, and as this commission ended its tenure, I got a grant to study homicidal individuals in the state of Texas prison system, and lo and behold, the play histories of the homicidal males, a wide variety of individuals incarcerated in Texas, the play histories were very different than the matched uh, controls. Hmm. That, in, in, in 1967, kind of opened my eyes that something's going on here in human violence that seems to be associated with play deficiency. Yeah, you mentioned one, one of your things I've heard you say is that study was the thing that people you discovered was that all the people who are... Uh, mass murderers on death row, all of them had an absence of rough play as a child, right? Yeah, we what we found, I asked about playground play and rough and tumble play, which by then uh, was evident was a, a normal part of the trajectory of play of most human beings. And the homicidal individuals were either isolated or abusive and bullies or some some abnormal uh, playground activity so that they did not engage in the normal give and take that happens in a in a playground in a setting that is get, gets 
allows normal play such as open recess does so that there's a huge amount uh, at least we felt at that time and it's been reinforced many many times since that the process of rough and tumble play is how we learn to take our lumps and not give them how we learn yeah. empathy to some degree and how we learn to win and lose and who we are but the homicidal individuals, by and large, had highly deprived childhoods so that they did not have the skills or the opportunity to engage in rough and tumble play. So that's a good question. I know what you need on your plates because I've had it on mine recently. Flying K Ranch beef. Oh, my freaking goodness. Holy shnikes. There's benefits to having a podcast that's growing. One of them is the people send you free stuff hoping you'll like it and then talk about it. That's what happened with Flying K Ranch Beef. They sent me a smorgasbord of steaks. They are mouth-watering. The burgers are incredible. And the roasts make family dinner a breeze. They're located in Findlay, Ohio. Uh, and they have no hormones. Let me say that again. Flying K Ranch has no hormones or antibiotics. So it's basically... Like when I go elk hunting or deer hunting or something like that. It's pure, pure meat. They raise their cattle on pastures just the way cattle like it. Flying K Ranch is a family business partnering with Ohio State Nutrition Program, Beef Quality Assurance, and Certified Angus Beef National, ensuring happy results for both cattle and people. That's a lot of words just to say this. The beef is amazing. Order it now, and you will not be disappointed, because I have not. Find out more and place your orders at flyingkranchangus.com. That's flyingkranchangus.com. And now I'm hungry. Of all the guests I've gotten to connect with this year, Ginny Urich is by far the most well-prepared well-read, and ready to bring her A-game forward. I would also probably say she has the most positive attitude. She's got the most infectious laugh. She has the most desire to be present in the moment and be positive. Seriously, I was like, man, I may be able to have you on this podcast every week. Um, That's how much I appreciate her demeanor and attitude and how much that is lacking in our world. So she's the founder of the 1,000 Hours Outside Movement. Jenny's a movemental leader, helping extrapolate many of Dr. Brown's learnings to the next generation. She's an author, podcaster, and speaker, encouraging people to get outside the four walls of their homes and offices and spend time actually outside. In our original conversation, Jenny explained just how powerful getting outside can be. We're trying to get outside for a thousand hours over the course of a year in an effort to bring back balance between real life and virtual life. And it really stemmed out of, it didn't stem out of the stats. It it stemmed out of my failure as a mother. You know, when I had young kids, I was drowning. It was so awful. (laughs) You know, I don't know. I struggle with it. I was not good at it. They're crying all the time. We had three under three. And I had a friend who told me about this British educator from the 1800s. So I don't know. I don't know why we're listening to people from back then, but she was into it. And her name is Charlotte Mason. She was kind of like this philosopher and 
her works are still used a lot today uh, in, in regards to education. And she said that kids should be outside for four to six hours a day whenever the weather is tolerable. And I just remember thinking that was outlandish. Who has time like that? Who's doing? No one's doing that. But we tried it. And this friend of mine kind of gave a little push. She said, well, let's give it a shot. And we met at this park. It was over a decade ago from nine in the morning to one in the afternoon, four hours, had toddlers, had babies. And it was, I say it was the best day of my life because it was the first good day I had as a mom. And I wanted to love being a mom. And I was just really struggling. And that outside time turned it around for me. So it stems from there. The stats came later where I started to find out that kids are only outside for four to seven minutes a day on average, four to seven minutes, free play outside, but four to seven hours on screens. So this goal of getting outside for a thousand hours in a year, it solves a lot of modern day parenting problems and just gives a lot of answers in a simple way. We all know about the evils of cell phones and the evils of social media. And I use the term evil lightly because I use my cell phone a lot and I use social media a lot. I'm not saying those things are inherently evil, but we're, we we're pretty, pretty convinced that those things, the way we're using them are not healthy for us. They're dividing us as a society. It's making us less able to have conversations with people. I mean, those, those are all the, but what you're saying, are I think what you're saying is something I've not considered before. You're, are you saying that it's not that we're on social media and not that we're on our phones that are necessarily a problem. It's, it's that those things are making us less likely to be outside? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, they're taking time away from everything, everything that makes us feel fulfilled. So relationships, this this is an illusion of relationships. They're not these relationships where someone's coming by your side and you're having a hard time. And, and it seems like, and that's, I think the problem is it's this illusion. So relationships are suffering and kids are just in their bedrooms. That's the prevailing thing. And they're not supposed to be. They're supposed to be out. They're supposed to be interacting with people. They're supposed to be having eye contact. They're supposed to be falling down. They're supposed to be trying things. Yeah. They're supposed to be overcoming. This is where they develop grit. This is where they develop resilience. This is where their brains develop. So if you think about childhood, all the things that you just said, sc screaming down the hill on your bike, all of these things, the, the child is wired biologically to do those things. And they're going to roll down the hill. They're going to swing. They're going to go higher. They're going to climb higher as they grow. And that is helping their cognition. And so we've got kids that are missing out on that. They're missing out on the emotional benefits of when we just go outside and we get to relax and let it all go. All the physical aspects. You know, this is an interesting thing. Our eyes, when we're inside, so right now, I'm inside. My eyes are contracted. It's called the ciliary ring. It's right around the eye. It's always contracted when you're in a short range of distance. It's even contracted when you're sleeping. The only time your eye ever relaxes is when you have a long range of field for your vision. So it only hmm. happens when you go outside. Our, our eyes only relax. Well, myopia, short-sightedness, is on the rise just like the mental health crisis. I mean, it's, wow. it's affecting our vision. They say 50% of our population will be short-sighted by 2050, and it's just exploded because kids are inside. They're on the screens. They're not letting those eyes relax. So there's even spiritually... I actually think you're a pastor. I think this is a church problem. I think that God has given to us an array of spiritual principles shown through nature, shown through his creation, and how and we're missing them. Yeah, consider the lilies of the field, right? Well, how 
How can you consider the lilies of the field if you're inside? And I think God has given to us all of these spiritual principles so that we can walk alongside our kids and show in the creation, you reap what you sow right? You know, you're not going to plant this apple seed and get an orange. And that's what I want my kids to know. So I think, I think it's a spiritual problem too, that we're not outside in what God has made. Damn. (laughs) Jenny, you're talking like, you're talking like you know something about this stuff. You're talking like you actually care. You're talking like you have passion. You're talking like you're actually educated. I I think it's a a thing. There's no better place to end than here. If you don't know what movie I'm quoting, you're not a red-blooded American citizen, or you haven't been listening to the, the podcast. Of all the guests I've connected with this last year, Randall Wallace just might be my favorite. He thinks he's related, though he can't prove it, to William Wallace, who the movie Braveheart was based on. He's the screenwriter with loads of incredible films, not just Braveheart, but Secretariat, We Were Soldiers, The Man in the Iron Mask. Uh, he is, he was and is a deep well of aggressive inspiration. Let's pick it up as he tells the story behind writing Braveheart and the wall he was up against. The journey of Braveheart and my own journey, uh, it's, they, the the story of Braveheart just matches my life. I think that's, for me, that's why it worked. Um, I I was a singer-songwriter. Um, I When I was in college, I I went to seminary. Um, I majored in religion in college. I, I had a hit record when I was in college, a local hit. And that made me dream that maybe I could have a career doing something creative. And, and honestly, Brian, and I know you relate to this, I... I, I felt the calling to serve God, but I didn't have a sense that that was in the ministry. And I was torn because my friends in school were going to go hold the hands of the dying and they were going to pastor churches. They were going to teach people to, to plant trees in, in places where they needed them. They were going to do that kind of work. And, and I had the opportunity to go off to to pursue a career as a singer-songwriter in Nashville. And I had a meeting with my, my pastor at the church where I grew up, and he said, do you feel the call to be a pastor? And I said, no, but I know it's the greatest calling anyone could have. And he said, no, it's not. The greatest calling anyone could have is the calling God has for you. And, and I left not sure that this was my calling, but... I left to pursue that with, with the love and support of people that mattered the most to me. I wasn't having success in music. I came to California. I met a woman and got married. Uh, we had a son on the way. And before we, the baby came, we decided we would take a trip. And she had ancestors who were LDS. And they knew all of their, the history. I mean, the Mormons, you know, research all of their genealogy. But she knew her ancestry, and I didn't know mine. And, um, and so we took a trip, uh, spent most of our savings to do it, and, and we were walking into Edinburgh Castle, and there was a statue of a man named William Wallace. 
And I said to one of the, the guards there, a tough guy in a kilt, and I said, who is this William Wallace? And he said, a great estero. And, and I thought, and I'm elbowing my pregnant wife going, greatest hero, honey, Wallace, honey. And I said to the guy, so was he a, an ally of Robert the Bruce because Robert the Bruce's statue was on the other side of the entryway. And this guard said, well, no one will ever know for sure, which of course are magic words for a writer, but our legends say that William Wallace may have been betrayed by Robert the Bruce so that Robert the Bruce could himself become the king. Now, I knew Robert the Bruce was the greatest king in Scotland. Uh, and in that moment, honestly, Brian, it was like hearing that that St. Peter and Judas were the same individual. Mm. Wow! I thought in that moment, what if there was something so noble in the life and the death of William Wallace that it transformed Robert the Bruce from being the kind of man who would betray his country's greatest hero into the kind of man that could be his country's greatest king. It's that, that transformation. And, and I felt like I was struck by lightning. I knew that it, had, it was calling to my soul. Um, and my soul has to answer. Um, but I also, and I knew that wasn't going to go away. I knew I couldn't run from it. And I didn't feel ready to respond. I, I didn't feel together. For one thing, I had a child on the way, and I wasn't sure how I was going to pay for the baby formula and, and, uh, and the, the baby blankets. I needed, to, I needed to work, but also I needed to learn more in my craft. And I reached a point in which I thought I was going to lose everything because I'd had a long-term contract in, in television. And because I had that contract that promised me an income, I felt that it was safe to buy a home for my sons and my, my wife and, and remodel that home because I had this long-term contract. And then there was a writer's strike and the company suspended my contract and during the strike, the company I had the contract with began to die. And when the strike was over, I was near bankruptcy. I had, I had all sorts of bills. I had no prospects. I had no job. And, and I was knotted up. And I got down on my knees, which was the only place I knew to go. And I prayed this prayer. And it was, Lord, I, what I'm most concerned about is my son's. Because when I was the same age they were, my father had had a breakdown. He had lost his job and he had come apart, been in the hospital. And it was the most terrifying thing in my life. And my sister and I were farmed out to relatives. We lived in a house with no indoor plumbing. And um, so I said this prayer. It may be the best thing for my sons is not that they live in a house in California with a swimming pool and a tennis court and fancy cars. Maybe... They'll learn more if they live in a tiny little house, but that house was full of love. And, and our parents taught us how you get up when you're knocked down. They taught us faith. And if that's what God wants my sons to learn now, then help me bear it. But if I go down in this fight, help me just go down not on my knees to Hollywood, trying to sell Hollywood what Hollywood says it wants. Let me go down with my flag flying, fighting for what I believe. 
And I stood up and went back to my desk and started to write again. And without that experience, every man dies, not every man really lives. They may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. Those words would have never come to me. Those moments would have never happened. You penned that. You didn't quote somebody. That came out of your creativity. Say that again. Say that again. So good. Say it again. They may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. And every man dies. Not every man really lives. In fact, Brian, it's funny because it's on the wall of the Air Force Academy in Colorado. They may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. And under it, it it says William Wallace. William Wallace never said that. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. 2023 is almost, or it's in the rearview mirror right now, but we've got great stuff coming in 2024. It's interesting how I've often said, looking back at this year, I'll say in the podcast, hey, this isn't a faith podcast per se. I'll say that because I don't want to be jammed in the Christian bubble kind of market. That's I'm, I'm not in a bubble. You know me well enough. I'm not in the bubble. I burst my bubble. I've stepped outside of it a long time ago. I'm trying to step in other people's bubbles and understand different things. But I'm going to stop saying this isn't a faith podcast because the fact of the matter is this podcast is all about my favorite topic, uh, me. Uh, that's what it's all about. My, my favorite topic is uh, is me. And one thing I know about me is I'm a, I'm a person of faith. I want to abide in God and I want God to be my life and my life is about God. It's about where he's going and what he wants me to do. And so I'm, a, I'm just going to stop saying this isn't a faith podcast. This isn't a Christianese podcast, but it's it's a podcast that's based on me and I'm a person of faith who wants to take bold moves. I take bold moves because there's a God who leads the way and is a safety net and a backstop for me. And so we've got some great stuff coming in 2024. A lot of them are with people of faith. It's going to be conversations about the sacredness of work with Jordan Rayner. That one's already in the can. Uh, Surviving a life-altering diagnosis with a friend of mine and mega pastor, mega pastor colleague, Matt Chandler, and a lot of other stuff that's going to help you or push your buttons. Don't put me in a box. Don't put me in a box. I'm going to burst out of that box again and again. We've got good, some good surprises coming for you. We'll see you in January on The Aggressive Life. Thanks for joining us on this journey toward aggressive living. Find more resources, articles, past episodes, and live events over at bryantome.com. My new books, a repackaged edition of The Five Marks of a Man and a brand new Five Marks of a Man tactical guide are open right now on Amazon. If you haven't yet, leave this podcast a rating and review. It really helps get the show in front of new listeners. And if you want to connect, find me on Instagram at Brian Tome. The Aggressive Life is a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio.